Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer West Side. Our church is located on Manhattan's Upper West Side, where we are living out the sacred call of Jesus to love our neighbors and heal our city. The scripture comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is God's word. All right, just some reflections on this text. Don't worry, I won't keep you long. <laughs> um, we're looking today at one of the first ever Christmas stories. I just love this. This is like a very spontaneous celebration of Christmas. This was, you know, eons before there was any pressure to make the most of these fleeting few days that um, many of us have off. This was before any of the pressure to um, recover from COVID and RSV and the flu and whatever other cold viruses we've all had this past uh, month or two. You probably can tell I'm recovering from something. Um, we have a spontaneous um, outburst of, of praise and joy and thanksgiving and awe and wonder over the birth of Christ. We have a, the original response to this original gift. It's, it's quite an amazing story. And just what I want to point out to you today is if we sort of make the same journey to go see Jesus that the characters in this story make, we too can capture some of that original awe and wonder. Uh, we too might be awakened to what in the world could have compelled these magi to risk life and limb, to travel hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to go and see it. We might capture some of what this text says simply, they were overjoyed. So let's look at <clears throat> the journey that they go on and how they celebrate. Well, the magi celebrate Christmas by giving gifts. We'll see how Herod rejects the gifts and then how Mary and Joseph receive the gifts. So first, let's look at the Magi. You could say that they celebrate Christmas by, by giving gifts. And that, you know, is sort of the core of this story as it's popularized. We have the nativity scenes and the Magi making this arduous journey. The journey that they make is pretty interesting. Their spiritual journey, you might say, is crossing the world, crossing nations. They really go the distance. 
I mean, it must have felt like halfway around the world at that time. The text simply says they came from the east. No one's exactly sure who these magi were. And there might have been more than three, by the way. Hate to spoil that uh, (laughs) scene, right? There's three gifts, so there's often thought to be three magi, but who knows how many there were. They're somewhat mysterious. They were multi-talented. They were sort of Renaissance men way before the Renaissance. They may have come from the Persian area, and they were practiced in all kinds of interesting arts, one of which was apparently reading the signs of the times in the sky. It's, it's a remarkable beginning to the story of Jesus. He's already this global phenomenon. Now, why do these outsiders, though, look for someone that they call the king of the Jews? Isn't that puzzling? Why would they have come all the way to meet the king of a nation that is apparently not their own? Well, you know, the Bible says, and cover to cover says this, that when God comes into the world, it's good news. That's what gospel means, by the way. And the Bible says that the gospel is for all peoples. It's for all groups. It's for all cultures. It's for all individuals. It's not just for one ethnic or racial or cultural group. It's not just for one kind of person. It's for all peoples. And that's why the story is told. That's why right at the beginning of his life, you have people from the farthest corners of the world, very learned people, worshiping Jesus as not only a human king, but some illustrious divine figure. They worship him. You don't typically just worship an ordinary human king. One of the most interesting images in the Bible that demonstrates this is, and it's sort of poetic, you have the kings of the earth and even the nations trailing behind them, um, streaming into Jerusalem to offer their best, to offer their gifts, to offer their treasures, their talents. Okay? And what you see in the poetry of the Bible Suggesting that this God is a God of all peoples is actually not poetry anymore. It's actually happening. But what I want to really underline, though, is that the Magi in our story don't just bring their material gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They also bring their cultural gifts, the treasures of their, of their people. Whatever this meant by their reading the signs of Jesus' birth in the sky. People often speculate, like, what was that? They go back into the astronomy charts and try to find a comet or something. This was no ordinary comet. I mean, it moved around and it pointed them places. And there are some Old Testament texts that talk about a star being associated with maybe a future leader who would emerge out of Israel, but certainly not in enough detail to sort of look up and go, ah, it's time. We're not really sure how they did this, but we know that it was part of their culture. And when they got to Jerusalem, And they said, where's the king of the Jews? We've seen his star. We're ready. We're ready to meet him. We're ready to worship. We're ready to offer our gifts. I love how the people in Jerusalem are just like, what? (laughs) We had no idea. What's really cool is that had it not been for these magi from the east, the people in Jerusalem might never have known about the birth of Jesus. I mean, think of how the story originated. You can read about it in Luke's gospel. Um, Some shepherds saw something in the fields one night. Sure. People didn't really listen to shepherds back then. Mary has this story about how an angel visited her. Easy to discount, right? But when you have these illustrious dignitaries coming with all their wealth and saying, he's here, we're ready, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more plausible. 
and it freaks everybody in Jerusalem out. <laughs> so the, the point here is that the Magi, from their faraway culture, bring something to the table and really show something about God that even the Israelites didn't know. The Messiah was here. That's a pretty big deal, right? They helped to shed some light on who God is. They shed some light on what God is doing in the world. They bring the riches of their own culture to make God more known. But not just that. They show up in Jerusalem, and they don't quite get it right either. There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, and he talks about this principle of sort of being nine miles off. (laughs) You know, on the one hand, if you sort of aim without any GPS help from thousands of miles away, and you're only nine miles off, that's pretty good. But somebody else said, nine miles physically is not so bad. Nine miles theologically is pretty far off. Okay? See, every culture, when, when God gets involved, and actually in each of your lives, when God gets involved, what you'll start to see happen is your potentials, your gifts, your talents, all the good things that are latent in you will start to come out, will start to grow, will start to come to full bloom. But also when God gets into your life, there's going to be some chipping away at some things. There's going to be some things that need working on. There's going to be some repentance. There's going to be some transformation. And by the way, this is one of the ways you know that the gospel is not just for one culture. See, the gospel doesn't say this culture is right, everything is blessed, everything is correct. No, every single culture the gospel gets into, it affirms part of it. It says, the things that you've been looking for, it's here through Christ, through God. But also every culture is going to have elements of it that are critiqued and corrected. And the Magi needed to learn something new about God. Even though they brought something new to the table, they had to learn that God chooses kings not from the center of power, not from the halls of power. By the way, the Israelites seem to have forgotten that because they have to go sort of leafing through their scriptures, right? They didn't even know he was here. But at least they had the resources to say, "Ah, actually, the way that our God works, he picks kings out of Bethlehem. Like, that's where King David came from. I guess there's a new King David in town, right? So the Magi were sort of, you know, nine miles off theologically. They had to learn that God works through the margins to speak into the halls of power. The Magi show up and say, surely Jerusalem, that's where all the elites are. That's where the current king is. That's where the scribes and the Interpreters of your scriptures live. Uh, This must be where the king was born, right? This is where God would have chosen. No, he chose the little town of Bethlehem. Okay. You know, in the end, though, um, the Magi do make this long and arduous journey. They cross all kinds of barriers, physically, culturally, but they bring their own treasures to the table, not just the gold and the frankincense and myrrh, but their own riches of of their people. And they too receive some correction. They receive some new treasures to take back home. Like you wouldn't believe where this God chooses his king. Of all places, Bethlehem. And they actually had to go there and see it for themselves. But they do it. They make the journey and they give gifts. They worship. Incredible. What about King Herod? If the Magi give gifts, Herod rejects the gifts. Um... King Herod, <laughs> interesting character, um, sort of caught between having to serve their overlords, the Roman Empire, and serving a populace in Israel that didn't really care for him. 
his spiritual journey that sort of he's called to partake this first or second Christmas is really an inner one. It's, it's not so much the nine miles, which he doesn't even make, by the way, but it's more of an inner one. Will he accept this news? And think of how hard this would have been for him. <laughs> uh, these dignitaries come, this huge, probably big delegation come, quite intimidating, and they show up to the king of Israel, Herod, and they ask him, so where's the new king of Israel? I mean, it's very in your face. It's, it's very confrontational in some ways with Herod. What does it mean to reject the gift, <clears throat> the, the gift of Christmas? It means to reject that God is king. I mean, for Herod, that was so obvious. He's king, <laughs> and there's a new king in town. What's it going to be, Herod? Are you going to accept that your reign is a temporary one, that you're reigning on borrowed authority, that your reign is relative to somebody else's kingship. But more broadly, it means, will you surrender to this God? He's God in the flesh, after all. He's God born into this world, after all. Will you surrender? I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us kind of walk around and experience the world as though we're the main characters and everyone around us is playing some supporting role. You know, it's very easy to just treat others, even People very close to us, our family members, our spouse, our kids, as just kind of extensions of ourselves. But when God comes into your life, um, it dethrones you. It dethrones that way of living. It, it knocks you off of your pedestal. And you no longer become the center of, of your own life anymore. You know, to, to admit that you need God's grace is to admit that you need spiritual saving. You need help. Not just a little help, not just a little touch-up, not just a little badge that you wear on top of all the other good things that are going for you in life. But no, the help that God brings, the help that required God to come into this world and do all the things that Jesus did, die and rise again, that is radical, a radical kind of help. And Herod knew enough about this future king, this Messiah. He knew enough to know the extent of what this meant for him. <clears throat> but he rejects the gift. No, I, don't need, I don't need grace. I don't need saving. I'm the king around here. He refuses to admit that his power is fragile. One of the ways that you can see this happening, even in your own life, is, is really deep insecurities. I mean, Herod and the rest of the ruling class in Jerusalem, they're really terrified. Now, this, this means that their, their system that they had in place was going to get turned over eventually. And he doesn't even go to Bethlehem. He doesn't even send his intelligence community. He doesn't send the CIA and figure out who this, who this you know, foreign um, dignitary, uh, who, who sent these dignitaries. He doesn't try to do investigation on who this new king might be himself. He's really insecure. He tells the Magi, you guys go. Come back and report to me. And not only that, he is about to commit one of the most horrific atrocities recorded in the whole Bible. The reason he wants to know when the Magi saw the star appear is so that he can get a sense for how old this boy is so that he can then send a team and go massacre any of the young boys in Bethlehem at that age or younger. This news of a king that was above him, a king that dethroned him, a king that displaced his own glory and authority 
absolutely terrified him. Uh, He would not make that inner journey of surrender, of saying, God, you're God, and I am not. By the way, I think his journey and the similar kind of journey that we all have to make if we're going to receive this God into our life, that journey in some ways is more difficult than the one the Magi went on. The Magi give gifts. Herod rejects the gift. He, he refuses the grace God sends. All right, finally, Mary and Joseph. They receive the gifts. Of course, they receive the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. But what I really love about this story is just, <clears throat> it's all the energy surrounding this child of theirs, this new king, the, the, this long and expensive journey that the Magi make. Um, the tragic and violent story of King Herod, all the things that he is scheming to do. All of that because of this newborn who is sitting on Mary and Joseph's lap. You know, in some ways for everybody, a spiritual journey is kind of like the Magi's. It seems like it goes on forever, months and months on end. You get a little lost on the way there, just like them. And maybe like them, you have to go back a different way. You never really come back the same when you go on a sort of spiritual pilgrimage like they do. There really is no there and back again. The real journey is this inner one. But I love the sort of journey that Mary and Joseph make. How far do Mary and Joseph have to travel to receive the real gift in this story? They don't have to go anywhere. The gift is right there. They could pick him up at any time. I feel like I've said this a lot at Redeemer um, over the years, but I think that Christians typically relate to God. They may not say this, but they relate to God as though God is up there and far off and inaccessible, and we better be really good if we're going to get his attention. He's probably not paying attention to us, so we got to sort of make a lot of noise and pray a lot of prayers and read a lot of our Bible to get his attention. Oh, but we read about these 30 or so years where he, he came into this world and he was relatable. He was approachable. You could walk up and talk to him. He would heal you if you had any kind of ailment. He fed people all the time. He helped people. He reached out to people who were totally excluded from society. Up, 30 years go up, and he leaves, and he's sort of back to his cold and distant and inaccessible ways toward us. It couldn't be further from the truth, though. See, when God comes in Jesus, he's showing us how we can relate to God all the time. And as Jesus is born, as he grows up, as he lives, as he ministers publicly, as he dies, as he rises to life again, we see different facets of God sort of you know, holding up and seeing different facets. Especially when he's a newborn, we see how utterly approachable God is. You could pick him right up. That's how approachable God is to you right now. Not just for those first few months. No, right now. God is saying, if you want to see me, look at Jesus. He's the image of God. I mean, it couldn't get any clearer. God is that approachable to you right now. I love the scene where Mary and Joseph, just a few days after he's born, take him to the temple for the obligatory um, offering for a newborn. And there's this scene where this elder, Simeon, 
It seems that he's just been there kind of waiting for some good news to come to Israel. And the text is just so matter-of-fact about it, but it says, Simeon took him up in his arms. You know, he just picked up the baby. You remember the other day where we looked at the story of the ark? Somebody just tried to reach out and touch the ark, and boom, they're gone. <laughs> God is saying, this is how approachable I am now and always. Simeon just picks him up in his arms. The one who has just been called not only son of David, this human king, but son of God, a divine king, one whose origins are from beyond the walls of this world. That is how approachable God is. You know, the spiritual journey of the Magi is like all of our journeys, long and hard and really changes us. Um, In many ways, our journey is like Herod's. Will we sort of put God at the center and take ourselves off the pedestal? But the Bible says that the grace of God is also right there on your lap, so to speak. Just pick it up. It's right there. Ask and you shall receive. It's as simple as that. One last thing I'll mention. When you ask God for help, when you ask God for grace, he'll, he'll give you just what you need, though you may not know it at the time. You know, right after our story, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are going to have to flee to Egypt. I mean, that would have been really hard at that time. New baby. You know, this story shows us just how impoverished they were. They couldn't even afford a good place to have Jesus in Bethlehem. Probably would have been a little humiliating, to be honest. When they offer that sacrifice in the temple, shortly after he's born, they offer what was basically the cheapest possible sacrifice you could offer, a couple birds. They've really got nothing. And here, though, they come into some treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Like They're probably thinking, what are we going to do with all this? Do you know how much this is worth? But as soon as they flee, I, I just wonder how they would have financed this escape to Egypt and then back to another town. There goes the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? (laughs) We don't know. We're not told what they do with the gifts, but I imagine that that would have helped them greatly. Little did they know. When you ask for grace, when you ask for help, it's right there for the taking, and it'll be just what you need. So let's receive it today. Why don't we pray? Our Father in Jesus, we see that you meet us in just the way that we need, in a way that's in a human dimension, in a way that we can see and relate to. I pray, God, that you would also meet each and every person here today and whoever else might be listening or watching. Meet them where they are today. For some, today is maybe just a more bittersweet day, a more challenging day. We pray for grace, especially for them. Bless us, God, and give us the same sense of awe and wonder and joy unspeakable that we see in this story. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We invite you to check our website to learn more about the church and how to get connected to our community. Just visit RedeemerWS.com.